welcome to Coping with Care's podcast. We are an organization from the University of Michigan Dearborn. As a community, it is very important to address topics regarding chronic pain. And we strive to provide an uplifting environment and seek to mediate any social stigmas that may exist in our community. Through our podcast, we host a series of guests that provide insight on research-based interventions and risk factors that affect the daily quality life of those indirectly and directly affected. Today's guest is Dr. David Chatkov. We will discuss an overview of chronic pain, basic misconceptions, and a look into his research on the interventions available that may be overlooked in our medication-driven society. Dr. Chatkoff is an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. He completed his PhD in Counseling Psychology from the University of Southern Mississippi and specialized in Clinical Health Psychology during his pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral training at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System. In 2004, he completed his postdoctoral fellowship with the VA Connecticut Healthcare System in West Haven, Connecticut. This was a Yale University School of Medicine affiliated training institution. His works have been published in the Journal of Health Psychology, Ethnicity and Disease and Pain Medicine. His research focused on the biopsychosocial factors that are involved in pain management. Dr. Chetkoff, welcome and thank you for being our first guest with us. Oh, thank you very much, Gina. I appreciate being invited. Uh, so, Dr. Chetkoff, first of all, let's start with the basics. In terms of defining chronic pain in the literature, how is it defined? So, in general, if we take broad brush strokes, um, chronic pain is uh, considered to last three to six months. So, any pain that is lasting three to six months can be considered chronic. However, the World Health Organization, um, along with the International Association of Pain, came up with a classification system um, to try to look at these different chronic pain conditions and be able to uh, classify them. And what they came up with was uh, separate classifications of things like musculoskeletal pain, neuropathic pain, which we often see in diabetes, um, post-surgical pain, which is an area that I'm particularly interested in right now. That's chronic pain that develops after a surgical procedure, um, headache, thinking about things like migraine, uh, cancer pain, and uh, several others. Uh, unfortunately, chronic pain is actually uh, quite common. Although the research is a bit mixed, uh, we could estimate that between 20 to 30% of the US adult population is affected by chronic pain. Um, furthermore, some estimates suggest that up to 4 in 10 chronic pain patients do not receive adequate treatment for their pain condition. Uh, so it's, it's a significant problem. Now for the patients that aren't receiving adequate um, treatment for their conditions, is that because of a lack of resource or lack of access in their communities or just basically you focus on the biopsychosocial model. Is it inadequate because it doesn't encompass all aspects of the model? I think what we're seeing is a bit of uh, a conundrum in that uh, historically we have been moving towards greater medicalization in terms of treatment for chronic pain. 
despite the fact that we have robust evidence on the effectiveness of psychosocial interventions to treat chronic pain conditions. And so I think part of the problem is, is we have been moving away from uh, the use of more integrative multidisciplinary treatments and moving towards greater medicalization, leaving patients with less uh, interventions that may be available for them. Right. And as far as the classification system you discussed earlier from the International Association of Pain, is that something that is standard we use all across the globe, or is it just certain disciplines that use this classification system? So this classification system was developed to uh, be integrated into the international classification, uh, the 11th version of the international classification of, of disorders. Um, and there is still controversy about how chronic pain conditions should be classified. Also, oftentimes we hear people interchange the words acute pain and chronic pain, but they're two different things. How can we distinguish the two? So that's a good question. Uh, it would be nice if there was this clean dividing line to be yeah. able to, to separate the two out. But generally, we think of acute pain as a pain associated with tissue injury. Um, so for example, you fall off a curb, you know, a sidewalk curb and twist your ankle. And the pain that you experience from that is adaptive and that it lets you know to rest that area and allow healing to take place. And then the pain from that tends to fade as the tissue healing takes place. Similarly, if you burn yourself in the kitchen, you know, burn one of your fingers in the kitchen, that pain fades as the healing uh, completes. Chronic pain, on the other hand, is generally not temporary and is not associated necessarily with tissue injury or could be associated with initial tissue injury, but continues on past uh, the healing period. So it tends to be quite pervasive um, and independent of the ongoing trauma, um, hence my sort of interest in post-surgical pain where even after uh, a healing has taken place, um, pain persists for that you know, three to six month period or most likely beyond that time period. Okay, so acute pain is typically short term. Chronic pain is, we look at longer term, the spectrum of healing and then post healing, it continues on. Correct. Are there any biological factors that may contribute to somebody being more susceptible to chronic pain than other people? I think there's still work taking place in that. Uh, I know that uh, this is slightly outside of my area, but I know that uh, folks at the University of Colorado Boulder had done some work on uh, cytokines, which are immune messengers, uh, basically. Uh, cytokines released by glial cells in the spinal column that may be predisposing people to uh, the development of chronic pain. So there are people that are looking into that, definitely. Very interesting. And as far as in our community, you did list a few chronic pain conditions, but what are the most common conditions that people suffer from that fall under chronic pain? So clearly, um, we see chronic low back pain as a very common condition, and nationally is, is probably considered the most common. But other common conditions, uh, osteoarthritis, 
um, and we see joint pain, uh, knee, neck, shoulder joint pain, uh, migraine headaches are quite common. And then um, diabetic neuropathy or nerve pain uh, caused by nerve damage, peripheral nerve damage caused by diabetes. And diabetes is quite common um, and neuropathic pain from that is quite common. Well, all of these are pretty common. It's also important to recognize that they are quite different from each other. If we think about um, something like migraine headaches being very different than diabetic neuropathy. Right. And Dr. Chekhov, there's no doubt about it. There are a lot of misconceptions, whether it's in the medical field or daily life and society in general. What are the common misconceptions surrounding chronic pain? So I think that's a great question, and I think it really does need more attention and more recognition. Um, our current conceptualizations of chronic pain understand this experience as a complex interaction between biological processes, uh, psychological, and social factors. And we need to think about all three of those domains uh, when we are considering chronic pain. Um, a conceptualization of chronic pain that was derived by an article um, it was written by Sarah Banks and Robert Kearns, I believe it was in 1996, uh, describes chronic pain as uh, cognitive, affective, biological, and behavioral variables that interact to create a chronic pain experience. And this experience includes or is typified by uh, certainly pain, but also uh, distress and disability. And so I think one common misconception is that chronic pain is only a biological process, that it only involves no susception or the communication from uh, nerve cells, uh, if you will. Um, and the psychosocial factors are often neglected. It's interesting that you call or that this article calls this an experience. Do you think taking that step and changing the language that we use a little bit can destigmatize chronic pain? I would hope that it would because there is a fair amount of stigma around the chronic pain experience. So I would hope that viewing it as much more of a experience as opposed to a purely nociceptive you know, on a zero to 10 scale, how would you rate your pain? Um, I, I think that would be helpful. Right, and what do you think is the main reason that chronic pain is so stigmatized? I think there are a lot of factors that go into the stigmatization of chronic pain. Um, uh, social factors, cultural factors, but I think also stigma can be particularly um, salient in pain conditions that are poorly understood or don't have um, a clear objective evidence of pathology. And we really see this, uh, for example, in individuals with chronic fatigue or a fibromyalgia is a really good example. Um, so these patients often face uh, stigma and disbelief about their condition and about their pain experience 
from both physicians and also the broader community of their friends, their families, um, and even their work sites. And I think a good example of this uh, is that fibromyalgia patients often experience muscle weakness. And so they may receive a disability card for their car uh, to be able to park in, in disabled spots. But they also report that when they leave their car, because they are able to walk and that their symptoms and disability is not visible, they certainly feel stigmatized or judged by people who are observing them, maybe going into a store. Um, thus, many patients, particularly with these pain conditions that, uh, like fibromyalgia, um, they choose not to disclose their pain condition. And so they live in silence with it. And as I'd mentioned before, uh, we have a large number of patients who aren't receiving adequate treatment anyway. So the choice to disclose or not disclose in a work environment can also be compounded by employers' reluctance to provide accommodation because of the expense. So this can create stigmatization as well in the workforce. So the next time we do see and catch ourselves making judgments based upon a person that comes out of a vehicle with a disabled sticker, be mindful and make sure you pay attention to the judgments that you're making. We don't necessarily know when somebody has a condition because we can't classify them based upon appearance. For those that may not know, fibromyalgia is a condition that is classified by musculoskeletal pain. People don't normally show physical signs of this, and some are suffering in silence. So be mindful. And Dr. Chatkoff, we have covered a lot about the stigma behind chronic pain, and in a lot of the responses that came up in our conversation, you talked about education. Other than education, do you think there are other mechanisms we can use to destigmatize chronic pain in our community? Well, I think education is a huge part, and education not just in terms of uh, the general public, where uh, I think a lot of work needs to be done, but I think education amongst um, healthcare professionals is very important because we still see differences in treatment. Uh, for example, amongst uh, gender in terms of managing pain. And there's still, especially in things like fibromyalgia and pain conditions where the etiology is not well understood. Those are really critical um, because we still have, uh, even within our medical community, patients being stigmatized. And that's particularly true when we cannot point to, you know, imaging that shows, oh, here's the underlying problem or some clear diagnostic condition or procedure. And as far as imaging goes, is imaging one of the key ways that we can quantify, not necessarily quantify, but tell if somebody is actually suffering from a chronic pain condition or not? Or are there other ways to diagnose it other than just the patient reporting it to you? Well, that's one of the challenges with chronic pain is that, you know, we don't have a way to image pain. 
we certainly could image tissue damage or we could image um, certain disease processes like spinal stenosis, um, but we can't actually image pain. So pain is one of those things where we, we really do have to rely on uh, subjective assessments. And we do have some excellent ways of assessing chronic pain, but the fact that we don't necessarily have these clear objective measures does complicate um, uh, treatment decisions. Right, and what factors worsen pain or make it more difficult to cope with it? So there's actually a lot of factors. I think this is really important. And if we look at the general treatments, of course, my approach is, is psychosocial as a psychologist, but if we look at some of those, we see some significant uh, factors that influence the pain experience and that patients could develop in terms of coping in order to improve the pain experience. And we could roughly break these uh, different skills, if you will, into four different areas. So for example, we have found robust uh, uh, research for the effectiveness of self-regulatory skills, things like uh, teaching relaxation exercises, um, mindfulness and acceptance skills have been found to be effective in the, the treatment of chronic pain and thus represent good uh, coping strategies. Um, behavioral strategies are important. Uh, if we think about musculoskeletal pain, certainly uh, the maintenance of appropriate physical activity is vitally important as a coping strategy. Staying physically active. In terms of cognitive factors, a third domain, um, we certainly for some patients can help them to decrease certain cognitions like catastrophizing and increase their appraisals of how can they manage their own pain. Uh, sort of that difference between an internal and an external locus of control, which we know does predict uh, disability status. And finally, uh, sort of the fourth domain is uh, newer cognitive behavioral, uh, sort of third wave cognitive behavioral strategies, um, including uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And this focuses on mindfulness, acceptance, um, our cognitions, and is basically a behavioral strategy to get people to engage in behaviors active for patients. And Dr. Chetkoff, it's interesting that you bring up these several domains for how to cope with chronic pain. And you talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm doing this in quotations. It's become a hot topic in a lot of other things where you hear professionals come out and tell you, yes, meditation, mindfulness is very good for de-stressing. Are these directly related to the healing process for chronic pain, or are they just ways that people are able to cope and live happier lives with chronic pain? Oh, a couple of statements to make about that. In terms of uh, these different areas that I've talked about, it is important to recognize that the psychosocial treatments that we have are treatments for 
product pain. So they are treatments to actually reduce the chronic pain experience, not simply to um, live a happier life with chronic pain. And that's been one of the amazing things that's come out of all of this research. Um, so, so that's one thing that uh, I definitely wanted to mention. In terms of the third wave therapies that you're talking about, um, acceptance and commitment therapy is an interesting modality in that its fundamental objective is not to reduce symptoms. So if we think about this as a treatment for anxiety disorders or, you know, in our case, chronic pain, while we recognize that its goal is not symptom reduction, we also realize that that is often a byproduct of the treatment. And indeed, acceptance and commitment therapy is used extensively as a treatment for chronic pain. Interesting. And then within your studies, I know we covered this a little bit in the beginning, but of the biopsychosocial model, are there any aspects of the model that are overlooked by specialists today, especially that we're so driven on prescribing medications and just short-term kind of treatments for people with chronic pain? What do you think that doctors or professionals in the field overlook most of the time? I think one of the things that we know in terms of chronic pain is that we have fairly uh, robust literature research that shows that psychosocial interventions are effective in the treatment of many chronic pain conditions, particularly when delivered within the context of a multidisciplinary uh, um, treatment program. But what we do see is lesser use of psychosocial interventions and referrals to um, multidisciplinary comprehensive pain management centers and a greater reliance on more medicalized treatments. The opioid crisis that we are experiencing right now has uh, increased interest in the use of psychosocial treatments. So I'm hopeful that we will start to re-embrace, if you will, uh, the use of multidisciplinary comprehensive pain management approaches uh, to really move our fo focus more towards treating the full biopsychosocial factors associated with pain. Thank you, Dr. David Chatkoff, for being our first guest for episode one. And thank you for tuning in to Coping with Care's podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at copingwithcareumd at gmail.com. As a disclaimer, the presented media and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the organization's own viewpoints. We don't advocate or endorse the material. Rather, we present intriguing research by hosting experts in the field. If you are a loved one or suffering from any ailment, please seek medical treatment from a licensed physician.